0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, February 1st, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So let me tell you uh, tales of the Oceanside High School yearbook when I graduated in 1990. So uh, Sal Passanante, his senior quote was, save it. A lot of people went with, uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. A couple people went with, I've had fun, but this wasn't it. Here was one very, very interesting thing that happened in the class of 1990. See, there were these two twins, Danny and Matthew O'Donnell. And these guys were inseparable. So much that when they did separate... I really think they randomly chose which class they would go to. They didn't do the twin switcheroo one day a year. I just think they lived life as the other person, and they would talk to each other in their own little twin language. And they were very, very smart guys, but they were very loath to let anyone else in were Danny and Matthew O'Donnell. Well, wouldn't you know it, we had a Lauren O'Donnell in our class. And on the senior pages, for the first time ever, Danny and Matthew O'Donnell were separated by Lauren O'Donnell just by dint of the alphabet. Now, as for my yearbook quote, and listen, people were excited for it. What's Mike going to say? You know, one of my friends uh, Joe Lorge, his yearbook quote was, doesn't Lichman look stupid? Because he shared a page with Lichman. We had a good laugh over that. So what was mine going to be? And I thought a lot about this. We didn't, have, we didn't have all those pages where you got to pull in, you know, some ski trip you took and aspects of your life philosophy. You had one quote. You had one shot. It was like eight mile. And I came up with this quote. Unispicius, Pichius, Duo picius, And I submitted it. And then the editor of the yearbook, Ellen Lee, who I had a long history with, who I like because her name was an adverb, she came to me and said, in the most Ellen Lee way possible, What the hell is this? And I said, That is my senior yearbook quote. And she said, What does it mean? Now, I knew if I told her, she'd let the cat out of the bag. And what I wanted this yearbook quote to do was to spark a discussion. What does it mean? What language is it in? Shall we look it up? Let us ask the most learned foreign language teachers of our school. But they wouldn't know it because I'll tell you what it means in a second. And then Ellen Lee said, I need to know what this quote means if I'm going to run it. And I said to her, if I tell you what it means, are you going to run the translation? And she said, I might. And I said, then I'm not going to tell you. Now, to this day, if you look at the 1990 Oceanside High School yearbook, you will see my name. And under my name, there will be a blank space where the quote should have been. Because Ellen Lee did not run my quote out of fear that it might say something offensive. I will now reveal what the quote did mean means one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish in Latin. That's all it meant. It was a piece of nonsense. And Ellen Lee saved the senior class and the entire community from having to know that. I only bring this up to mention that in the year 1990, yearbooks had gone pretty much on the straight and narrow. But apparently in the 1980s, yearbooks were crazy because Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia had his yearbook Played out for the world today, and there we saw on the 1984 yearbook of the Eastern Virginia Medical School. So not not some high school kid, not a crazy college kid. There in his medical school yearbook is a picture on Ralph Northam's page of two people, one is in blackface and one is wearing a KKK costume. I guess the best thing we could say about this is Ralph Northam was either not in the Klan costume or not in blackface but only one of the either is the technology wasn't there so that he could have done both. And this was medical school, medical school. I do not understand these people. It's just crazy. I guess you could say it was a different time, but my, this, this, uh, this incident I'm talking about in 1990, when I graduated, it was only six years later and it wasn't medical school. I don't know. In times like this, I just come back to uh, the famous Latin quote, quad non simulus, viridia ova atque perna. Yes, quad non similis Viridia Ova, at Gay Perna. On the show today, I spiel about the big game and the big ads in the big game. But first, you have heard about the fire Festival. It was when thousands of really privileged people went down to the Bahamas and had a terrible time. Thanks to the Svengali swindler Billy McFarland, who in no way pulled the whole thing off. There are two competing documentaries about the fire Festival, about McFarlane, and one source in each of the documentaries is a guy who was there, a guy who's been writing about it, tweeting about it, will be doing a podcast about it. Seth Crosnow, up next on The Gist. The Fire Festival was, you know by now, a disastrous event that led to some wonderful documentaries, sort of like the U.S. policy of extraordinary rendition. Although those documentaries weren't as fun, it's harder to find a streaming service without a Fire Festival documentary. There is one on Netflix. There is one on Hulu, and an interesting voice in both of those documentaries and an attendee of the festival is Seth Crossno. He lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, and he has a, a blog as William Needham Finley IV, WNFIV, <laughs> is his Twitter handle. He'll be coming out with a podcast soon, and I want to talk to him about the actual experience and what he makes of the documentaries. Hello, Seth. How are you?
1: Great. Uh, how are you doing? Thanks Good.
0: Having- Good. So why'd you decide to go? Why everyone else decide- decided to go? Because Emily Ratinkowski or whatever her name is told you to?
1: Yeah, obviously, you know, we were going to meet and hit it off and have a you know, wedding ceremony on the beach but um, it, it was really uh, my buddy's idea, like all you know, great stories, it starts with your friend calling you up and yeah. saying, there's a great trip that we got to go on and he talked me into going and figured I could go kind of cover it satirically from this character's perspective because I'm not an influencer, you know, I had maybe 4,000 followers or something and I thought it'd be a funny experience to, to go on and write about, but then it also looked like a a pretty cool vacation as well.
0: But it did, it seems, it seemed to you to be a little ridiculous from the jump. I mean, you invented this character who is, uh, you know, some hoity toity, uh, rich kid. And so I think you went into it with a little bit of a tongue in cheek saying, I'm going to both participate and make fun of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that character was created about ten years ago, and so his evolution was just to you know, I mean, obviously he was based in my hometown, but this is something that you know, influencers were becoming more common, and so obviously William Needham finally wanted to be an influencer because he'd already done you know, quote unquote journalism and blogging, and the next step is to to enter the world of influencers, and what better place than than Fire Festival?
0: Yeah. When did this, in your mind, start – when did it start dawning on you that this might be something other than just a wild slash ridiculous time and might be more of a true clusterfuck in the true sense?
1: Well, we actually – as – you know, we got tickets pretty early on before any of these crazy cabana packages or yacht packages were added. So, you know, our, our total ticket cost was – and everything all included drinks and food and everything was around $5,000. And as they added these, you know, $250,000 yacht packages and these, you know, $1,000 boat rides, I said to my friend, like, I think we're in over our heads. Like, I think we signed up early for something that we thought was just this festival. Now this is like, you know, hanging out on the red carpet. I, I don't know if this is, like, Gonna work out here, you know.
0: So in the Netflix, in both documentaries, but they have good footage from the buses, which are yellow school buses, uh, yeah. entering the area where you're supposed to stay in luxury, and it's FEMA tents. And so, is this the moment where it dawns on most people? Oh my God, this is going to be a disaster.
1: Yeah, that's that's it. Because I mean, I, our our bus was like a regular shuttle, so okay. I, I think a, a school bus picking me up would have you know, raise some red flags or some, some questions considering we were supposed to have this, you know, luxury experience. But, um, you know, we, we got to the site like right at the entrance and you see just the bathroom trailers and these trucks and cargo containers and mattresses everywhere in the tents. And you're like, Oh, this is not, um, you know, what i what I saw in the commercial, you know. So.
0: What kind of traffic was or hits were your postings getting during all this?
1: On Twitter, I only had about four thousand followers at the time, and that pretty much doubled. And then in the month after Fire Festival, those tweets got about fifty-five million impressions. So a lot of people were using them in in their articles and stuff. And uh, oh, so
0: it was so even though Twitter's supposed to be of the moment, they were really used as a uh, part of the historical record. It was almost yeah. like they exhumed a diary from the time and used it afterwards for the accounts of what was going on uh, at, in the moment,
1: yeah, yeah, so there's it's funny, I'll get spikes and stuff like anytime something related to you know when Billy would get charged, I'd go, why do I have you know two million impressions today? Oh, okay, Billy's in the news, and his tweets are in the story about Billy, so
0: so after the festival, what actions did you take either? legally or to try to keep chronicling this in character or out?
1: Yeah. So we, we got back and we really just wanted our money back. And um, Stacy Miller is my attorney. And he I had kind of jokingly tweeted at him on the runway, like, fire, you're going to be hearing from Stacy Miller. And he, he saw that tweet and called me in the morning. And I was in the airport and he was like, where are you? I'm in the what do you do? what do you do? All right, call me when you get home and so we did and he was like, this is fraud you know and he looked through everything and he, he decided that we should file a uh, a suit to try to get our money back against the founders and Billy and Ja rule and
0: it must have been good though to see a legal document that said in the case of crossno V rule,
1: Yeah, it was, it's, yeah, pretty surreal. I never thought that's a sentence I'd be saying, but... uh,
0: So did you work with the producers of either documentary?
1: Yeah, I worked with both of them. You know, just because my footage and stuff is out there a lot, I get contacted by all sorts of people doing projects. And
0: And did you know that Billy was going to get paid by the uh, Hulu documentarians? I did not. And what's your take on that?
1: It's just not, I don't know, I... Not really a big fan of that move, you know. I understand giving somebody the platform to tell their story. That's one thing, you know. I would like to hear some answers from him, but he doesn't seem to be capable of really answering things honestly. And so then on top of it to pay him when so many victims in the Bahamas haven't been paid and, you know, people from his former company haven't been paid, investors, just seems kind of, I don't know, not the best thing to do.
0: The other documentary was done by, well, was it done by the team behind Fuck Jerry, who, which is the name of essentially the marketing company that Billy worked with?
1: Well, yeah, they were one of six uh, marketing agencies that worked on it. And they were one of the producers, along with Vice, Library Films, and Matt Projects.
0: Yeah. I think there's a decent case, but you tell me if you disagree, that some harm to the festival goers does accrue to Fuck Jerry.
1: I mean, you know, everybody was involved. And it wasn't, I mean, I can, I can see people making that argument, mm-hmm. um, but after kind of talking more with them and, you know, watching the documentary and kind of seeing more of some things behind the scenes, it, it really did seem like a case of them not really having any idea what was happening. So, I mean, some people could say like, well, they should have known better, but you know, there was that good line from the guy from Matt projects. who was like, if you film a BMW commercial and the engine, blows up like are is the photographer responsible is the director responsible and so i think obviously they helped promote it but it was just also the job that they were doing you know
0: so what are what do you think the strengths? let's just go through them uh what do you think as a viewer the strengths of each are
1: i thought the for the netflix one that the the footage they had from the Matt project shoot was really great because you got to see behind the scenes like you know, Fire Festival happened, but it happened for one weekend on that promotional shoot. And um you kinda got to see Billy and, and Ja and everybody and how they were acting and, and interacting and Grant. So that was really interesting and, and having interviews with more of the I guess people that were making the decisions, like Mark and, and Andy King and things like that, or or at least trying to pull this off, you can you can kinda empathize with what they were doing. So seeing their interviews and, and the footage that Netflix had I think they told a better story um, and uh, kind of a more fair story. And I liked that they put more of a spotlight on the people in the Bahamas as well and and helped with the GoFundMe to to raise funds for Marianne. I think um, the Hulu one, you know, obviously having Billy was an interesting component of theirs, although he didn't really say anything. But at least I think that shows people that he – and that the type of person that he is, you know, you watch the Netflix one and you see confident Billy and he's about to take over the world. And this is the, the greatest thing ever. And then it's the defeated Billy in, in the Hulu doc. And you kind of see how he, he deals with that. So, you know, I think they're both worth watching, but, um, you know, the whole thing's some. I think somebody joked that I want to see a documentary about the documentary.
0: I didn't get quite the sense of why, why Billy was so quote unquote successful, except if someone has a lot of bluster and a great motor and maybe starts off with some advantages in life. Maybe it's hard to stop him, but he just seemed like maybe it's in retrospect and knowing what we know, but he seemed like a schlub who doesn't have a lot of natural charisma.
1: I I agree completely. And that's something that I've asked people in interviews is like, what about him won you over? I keep hearing this charisma thing and it's just, it keeps being repeated. And it's like, I don't see that because you see him in the Netflix one and he's, he's confident, but he's not like, I don't think he could sell, you know, sell me on anything amazing. He just seems like an average guy. You know, I've seen just little things here and there on Twitter where somebody said, oh, Billy approached us with the magnesis card and, you know, wanted us to promote it. And I could tell immediately that this was a kind of a scam. And so, you know, I think people along the way saw it, but I think maybe the Hulu documentary pointed out that a lot of the PR was just kind of like press releases that were, that were being just churned out.
0: In terms of how they actually treated your interviews were both documentaries. Do you have any complaints with either?
1: Uh, no, not, not on the Netflix side. I think on the, the Hulu side, um, it was weird. I think that, uh, I had gotten a call. I think somebody from one of the production teams had seen, uh, me say I was going to be in the Netflix thing. Cause I, I didn't talk about it a lot because you're not supposed to. And mm-hmm. so, uh, when people would ask, are you in the Netflix documentary? I'd say, yeah, check it out. And So somebody saw that. And then I had somebody from the Hulu side call and say, are you, somebody Somebody saw this. Are you really in the Netflix one? I said, yeah. And they said, well, okay, we're going to have to cut you from ours. And I said, all right, it's, it's fine with me. And then I actually was on the plane about to take off, and I got retweeted by Hulu. And I thought, well, that was weird. They retweeted some old Fire Festival tweet. And then five minutes later, they announced that they're – Documentary's out, and so I'm I'm watching it. And like, okay, well, I'm I'm in this now. So
0: overall, are you glad you went to the Fire Festival? I mean, it's
1: it's been an experience. Like I, I I guess so. Uh, it's been cool to do these interviews, and you know I've always wanted to get into a podcast, and the you know area that I kind of operate in is very very narrow. And so this is now a topic that's like a national global topic. And and um, I'm kind of excited to try to see if I can entertain people on that level. So I mean, I guess there are some, some good things that have come out of it.
0: And I do think that the fact that you could look back on this as definitely not a fun couple of days, but overall, at least an interesting experience that gets at why We're societally so fascinated by the festival. It's that it seemed to show us things that we wanted to be shown. It seemed to reveal that people we always suspected were scam artists were in fact that. But the other big part of it is there was no real harm. There was no long-term harm. Some rich kids had to eat a cheese sandwich. Sad enough, but we'll all get by. So it seems to be this easy enough lesson with low enough costs.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. I mean, there's obviously like, you know, some people involved are, um, you know, they're real adamant about like some of the misinformation and, you know, people are like, we didn't pay a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, if, if people want to read an article and it says everybody paid $12,000 to go, like, I'm never going to meet these people on the internet. Like, it's okay. You can, (laughs) you can think I'm this like rich kid if you want. It's, you know, um, it's a character. Um, and, and you know, it's the Internet. It's not uh, the end of the world. So
0: Seth Crossnow blogs and tweets as William Needham Finley, the fourth he is coming out with. He is in both Fire Festival documentaries because he was there and he's coming out with the dumpster fire pod. Check for that. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Take care.
0: And now the spiel. The Super Bowl is this Sunday. It pits the highly innovative, flexible, successful exemplars of consistency and accomplishment against the team that everyone will be rooting for because it's fun to hate the Patriots. Hey, I'm a Jets fan. I'm supposed to hate Tom Brady's stupid, stupid dimple face and his coach, Emperor Palpatine of the sweatshirt. But those guys, are just creative. And the NFL is a staid and cautious institution. Now, if you want to say, hey, the Rams are creative, the Chiefs are creative, the Eagles are creative. Yeah, because they're trying to beat the Patriots. You want to know how risk-averse and uncreative the NFL is? Well, the NFL and its Super Bowl has given rise to a veritable tradition. And this tradition is the rejection of Super Bowl ads. Ads that come out that the networks can in no way and in no good conscience run. A few years ago, Fox rejected an ad from the online store, JesusHatesObama.com. That was the 2011 Super Bowl. They don't really believe that Jesus hates Obama, but they just want to sell you stuff on JesusHatesObama.com. And even Fox said... Over the line An online dating site Named Man Crunch Was rejected A few years ago And where is Man Crunch Now I ask you PETA PETA is always Getting ads rejected They know how to play This game And in 2009 NBC Rejected an ad Called Veggie Love Because it was Quite frankly Pornographic This year The most high profile Rejected ad Was for Acreage holding A marijuana Dispenser mm-hmm.
1: Austin would have dozens to hundreds of seizures every single
0: day. None of the prescriptions would work. One pill almost killed our son. Here's the thing. The Super Bowl, CBS, airing the Super Bowl this year, probably wasn't going to take any ads for marijuana. Just non-starter. But this specific ad was full of untested and misleading claims like this one. Medical cannabis saved Austin's life. Cannabis is giving me my life back. There are families in other states having to watch their children die. Legalize marijuana or your children will die. Come on! Jesus hates misleading ads. But the organizations behind the ads know full well that their ads are going to be rejected. It's part of the marketing plan. Life-saving marijuana got almost as much attention by being rejected as they would have if they were accepted. One common refrain among the people who wanted CBS to take the marijuana ad, which was never going to air, and the people behind it know it. One refrain, though, is, but they take beer ads. Well, okay, they take beer ads, but there's no beer ad that says, Connor was diagnosed with advanced chronic face cancer, and the only thing that saved him was Bud Light. But beer advertising does exist. It does blanket football and the Super Bowl. And this year... We will hear this song in an ad. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man That, of course, is Nobel laureate Bob Dylan in a Budweiser ad. What we see are a Dalmatian's ears pinned back by the wind. And then the camera pulls away to show the source of the wind And it's that the Dalmatian is on a cart, a horse-drawn cart. And that cart is delivering Budweiser through fields. And the graphics say, wind never felt better. Budweiser now brewed with wind power. Okay, the stuff still tastes like wind, right? In fact, it does. But what's up with this claim, brewed by wind power? Well, to quote a vice president of Budweiser's parent company, We are proud to be the first Anheuser-Busch brand and the first major beer brand to be brewed with 100% renewable electricity from wind power. And hopefully, we can use this moment to inspire others in our pursuit of a more sustainable future. And this turns out to be sort of true. Anheuser-Busch did contract with a wind farm in Oklahoma, and that wind farm is supplying power, a lot of power, not most of the power that Anheuser-Busch uses, but perhaps almost half the power. I've seen different estimates, but enough of the power so that it can say, well, if you only count the Budweiser brand, which is our second best-selling brand, not Bud Light. So if you only count the Budweiser brand, which is less than half our beer output and requires less than half the power we use, then yes. Budweiser can be considered to be 100% wind powered. Ask an Anheuser-Busch executive, hey, so that means that Bud Light is what percentage wind powered? You will not get a straight answer. But Budweiser is wind powered. It's using recyclable materials and cans. And from what I understand, Anheuser-Busch is actually pretty good on green issues as far as these multinational conglomerates, which require trucks to get into the stores, are. Even the Sierra Club gave Budweiser a mostly positive write-up for this ad and this initiative. Now, I'm not here to poke holes to point out that... Budweiser is playing a little bit of a game in its definition of 100%. What I'm doing is I am marveling at what this represents. Budweiser, the brand Budweiser, thinks it is good marketing to call itself environmentally friendly. They've partnered with an environmental peer-to-peer firm called Drift, and they will actually underwrite consumers' first month of energy if they switch to this cleaner energy promised by Drift. And the reason they're doing it isn't just marketing. It's only marketing. They have no real way to make the beer taste better. They have no real way to raise awareness. Everyone knows Budweiser exists. So all they can do is change our associations. A few years ago, this was the America branding, you know, the Kid Rock of beers. Now, it's this commercial that I just played. It's this environmental emphasis. The beers are going to have a green logo. Now, according to Reuters, in the third quarter of 2017, Budweiser revenue dipped 2.2% worldwide, despite gains in non-U.S. markets. And an executive of Anheuser-Busch said, We've talked to beer drinkers in multiple countries. They roundly agree that climate change is a big issue. Budweiser, the quintessential, nay, the defining product of Joe Sixpack, wants the Green Association. I, I'm just thinking, how long can one political party think that environmental denialism is a selling point when the white working class beer swilling, and I do mean swill, beer swilling voters who make up that party's base are seen as receptive to the opposite message. Not just receptive, Budweiser's using $5 million, more than $5 million for a Super Bowl commercial to emphasize this point. It's the only point of the ad. Budweiser, environment equal the same thing. I just don't understand how the party that seeks and purports to be the champion of those people. Who are supposed to be roused by this ad can continue on its path. Budweiser is literally now on the label going to be red, white, and green. It's pretty telling that Dalmatian is not the only one who should take note that the winds are shifting. And that's it for today's show. Pierre BNMA and Daniel Schrader got ripped off when they paid top dollar to see a gathering of the world's top yoked lute players. They would hear poetry accompanied by this handheld harp. So they complained because none of the artists showed up and the housing that they were promised, nothing more than a My Little Pony blanket draped across a sawhorse. The festival organizers responded, Hey, we told you it was the Liar Festival. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, she's strangely quiet about the fire Festival, and I learned why. Her family actually runs the sliced cheese on a piece of bread concession that service the fire festival. You can't pay for that kind of publicity. The gist we're like an influencer influenza. Yes, our mission is to afflict those who afflict the comfortable. Umperu da peru du peru, and thanks for listening.